Let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel. Last week we looked at chapter 6, and chapter 6 was a, a very momentous occasion for not only David the king, but also for the nation of Israel as they had brought the Ark of the Covenant from Abinadab, and, and they let it set for a while at Obed-Edom's house uh, due to an error that the Levites and David had made. But finally they bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and they place it in a tent uh, that David had made for it. You remember that the Ark of the Covenant and all the other furniture, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the, light, the lampstand, they were all in the tabernacle, but the tabernacle by this time has been at least four or five hundred, at least five hundred years old. And I'd imagine that that, that tent had wore out. <laughs> and it was time for a new tent. And so David builds another tent and he places it in there at the uh, on the in the Mount Zion, right next to the Temple Mount, where you and I know today. And it wouldn't be until his son, Solomon, would build a temple. And then that Ark of the Covenant and those other pieces of furniture would be placed back in the temple. And when Solomon did it, he did it really big, too. And David uh, spent the rest of his life, as we'll see uh, in the coming chapters, um, spent that time acquiring the materials, the gold, the silver, the bronze, everything that was needed for his son to build the temple. God didn't want David to build a temple. We'll look at that tonight. So David now has the temple, or excuse me, the tabernacle. Excuse me, not even the tabernacle. He has the Ark of the Covenant. I've got to get with it here. He has the Ark of the Covenant finally in Jerusalem, and now he's king over all of Israel. And can you imagine the great release that is for David? Now, after so many years being chased down by Saul, and now all the prophecies and those things are coming to fruition before his eyes and before the eyes of all the Israelites. And what a blessing and joyous occasion it was. And so David brings that ark into, um, into the Jerusalem. And then as he has got peace, you remember he, he established and fought the Philistines, right prior to the ark coming, and it was a, um, a time of relative peace. And now David starts to think about the ark. He's in his own ceiling, you know, cedar-tiled home, and it's beautiful. A king's house, palace, would be beautiful. And then I imagine he's thinking about the Ark of the Covenant, and he's thinking it's sitting out there in some tent, you know, and yet he's in this really beautiful place, and I can't help but wonder if David, we'll see tonight, I think it kind of got to him. He realized the disparity between where he was living and where the Ark of the Covenant was. And so David's desire, you know, was to build God a home. Build God a house, as if you can build God a house. Doesn't he inhabit eternity? Doesn't Isaiah 57, 15 tell us? It says, Thus saith the high and lofty one who inhabits the Hilton? No. Thus saith the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. The heavens and the heavens of heavens can't contain him, much less a house that man could build on terra firma. And so, 
But David's heart was right, and God blessed him for his heart attitude, which is always good. Aren't you glad that the God blesses you and rewards you based on what's in your heart? Hopefully that's good, because sometimes we don't have the means to do the things that we would like, but having the heart to do something for the Lord is what he reward, he'll reward you for, to have the attitude. And so let's just look at the first 17 verses. We're going to go through the whole chapter tonight. Um, the first 17 verses are really this... Uh, realization uh, of David that he wanted to build a house for the Lord, and then his seer, who was Nathan the prophet, they often called them seers, but he's a prophet nonetheless. So he has this, this conversation with Nathan, and the Lord has to correct even the prophet of God and David, because they both were wrong. But the Lord was blessed with their intentions, why they wanted to do it, but it just wasn't to be done and then we see from really from verses 18 down through the rest of the chapter through verse 29, David just giving thanksgiving to the Lord for what God has said that he was going to do, not only in David's life, but to David's progeny, to David's dynasty, going on beyond Solomon, beyond even Zedekiah, Judah's last king, going way, way into the future, even into the millennial reign and beyond. What a great, wonderful picture that is. So let's look at it. It says, Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all around from his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. And then Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever have I moved about with all of the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel." And will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more. As previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, notice, forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke 
to David. And can you imagine how David must have felt? You know, he set out to do this great thing for God, and God says, David, I appreciate it, but I got something I want to do for you. Isn't that the way it is? I mean, really, can God, can we really give anything to God that's of any import, of any eternal significance? I mean, other than what God does in us and, and, and what we do as a result of this new birth in us, this, new, this spirit of God dwelling in us, other than us giving back to God in our reasonable sacrifice, making our bodies a living sacrifice, other than doing those things and glorifying his name and being ambassadors to the world around us of his love and grace, is there really anything else that we can give to God? There really isn't. But God says, David... I'm going to give you so much more than you can ever imagine. I got a plan. I've had a plan from eternity past. I've had a plan. And I want to encourage you tonight as we look at this, especially as we get back into the Old Testament. Well, we're in there now, but as we get further back in the Old Testament, is just to see the hand of God, that God had a plan all along. there's There's no getting into something and then realizing, oh, I don't have a plan. I think that's kind of current news right now, isn't it? But anyway, you know, God had a plan. He knew exactly what he was going to do, and he had the power and the strength to follow it and see it through. No one else can do that like God does. He has the king. Whatever king there is, he's in the palm of God's hand. He turns him wherever he so chooses. And that gives me such great delight. It gives me great confidence, great assurance to know that nothing is happenstance. Nothing happens by chance. Nothing is a coincidence. Everything is by God's eternal design, and he is the mover and shaker. Not anybody else, not the Taliban, nobody else in this world. They will all bend the knee and bow before the great king of kings one day to the glory of God the Father and say, you are Christ, the Son of the living God, Now why that this passage that we looked at, and we've already looked at the first half of it, we call this the Davidic Covenant. This is a significant portion of Scripture this evening. It's significant. When we look at Matthew's Gospel, if you remember, Matthew's slant, if you will, on the Gospel was to show that Jesus was the rightful heir to the throne of David. That he was the rightful heir. And he does that by starting off with a genealogy. Remember, the genealogy is in the first 16 verses of chapter 1 of Matthew. And what does he do? He gives us a genealogy going from Abraham all the way to, to, uh, to David and then ultimately to Jesus Christ. And it's broken up just like that too. From Abraham to David, and then from David to Jesus. Wow, what is this about Jesus or David and Abra- or David and Jesus? There's a, a wonderful link between the two of them. And of course there is. Of course there is. It shows that Jesus is the rightful and qualified heir to the throne of David. After David has passed from the scene... And this covenant that God made with David is obviously is extremely important because God's going to continue to show his promise from beginning from the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 all the way through to the millennial reign of Christ. He's going to see it through, and we're going to look at that tonight. In Psalm 89, it says this in verse 3, 
The psalmist says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed will I establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. So this covenant that God made with David that we read, it not only affects David, but also his son Solomon immediately following him. And it continues all the way through the line of Judah, through the line of kings, all the way until Christ, all the way through to the millennial reign and beyond. It's incredible to me to see from a human perspective, how all of this could have come to pass and for all the, what, what the prophets have foretold. Because anything along the way could have gone wrong and all of this would have been null and void. It's interesting to consider when you think of David's fleeing from Saul and how many times he was this close to death. And do you understand that if David was allowed to be killed. Do you understand how much was riding on his life? I mean, could God have done some other way? Maybe he could have. I'm sure he could have. But he didn't. He used David. David was the one. He alone was the one. And how close was he to death? David even said to Jonathan in 1 Samuel chapter 20, he says, Truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. That's what he told Jonathan. He said, I make one wrong move and I'm toast. And how much of the scripture was riding on David's life? And was God faithful to see him through? Is he faithful to see you through? The answer is a unanimous yes. Yes, he is. He's able to see David through. And we're not even called to be, well, kings and priests, of course, but you know, we're no King David. But if he can do that in King David, how easy it is for him to fulfill his plan for our lives. But God's plan cannot be thwarted. From the beginning of time, God had a plan. We know that. And he was going to do it through one. He was going to do it through, ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ. But who was Jesus's ancestor, if you will? I mean, we know that Jesus always existed from eternity past. That's what John 1.1 is all about. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Before anything was made, he was there. So Jesus predated it all, and yet in the flesh, he came through the line of David. He came through the line of Judah. And what does it say in the Old Testament? Now, I'm going to give you some scriptures. I'm just going to read them to you. I'd encourage you to either get the, to re-watch the video or re-watch or re-listen to the, the audio recording or just write these down. I'm going to read them to you and I'm just going to read it to you for the sake of time. But when we go all the way back to Genesis, this is really important because this is how important the Davidic covenant is. Because back in Genesis 3.15, you remember what it said when God pronounced judgment upon the serpent. What did he tell him? He says, you are more cursed than all cattle, than more than any beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity or hatred between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Who is her seed? Singular, by the way. It's Jesus. Her seed. It says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It is the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, who would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. He's already done it. Now we're just waiting for the end game and it will come to pass. And that's why the devil is so full of fury because he knows his time is short. He knows the Bible better than you and I do. 
He knows his end is coming, and it hasn't changed him one bit. All he can do is take away as many from God as he can. The apple of God's eye is his creation, man. And all the devil wants to do is take as many down with him as he can. He knows he's going down, but he's going to take as many down as he can because he knows that's the only thing that he can do. He is not omnipotent. He is not omniscient. He is certainly not omnipresent. He's outgunned. He's got a rubber band and a little piece of wood, and God has got all power. He's got nothing. His end is sure. Can I get an amen? I like that. I like the fact that his end is sure, and it's written for us in the Word. I like reading that. So there it is. Jesus the seed of the woman, but Jesus has to come through the line of David. It tells us that in Genesis 49. Remember when Jacob was on his deathbed, he, he prophesies over his son, and when he gets to Judah, what does he say? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. Who is Shiloh? It's the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And to him shall all be all the obedience of the people. What does Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 say? That God is going to raise up for them a prophet from their midst, from their brethren, whom he, they will hear. This prophet, we, we've been in the Gospel of John, and, and that prophet is Jesus Christ. He is the one from Judah. He is the seed of the woman. And it all goes through David. So David is so important in this whole picture. And what about during David's lifetime? What was spoken concerning him? You remember in 1 Samuel 16 that Samuel, that the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? This is after Saul had died. Seeing I have rejected him. Sorry, it wasn't actually before he died. This is, um, never mind what I just said. <laughs> the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I will provide myself a king among his sons. And the implication is, of course, to reign over all of Israel. If you look at that verse 1 there. And what about David's, the, the, the prophecy of David? Even Jonathan, when he met him in the wilderness of Ziph in 1 Samuel 23. Jonathan said to David, he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of my father Saul shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. So David, the king, and Jesus Christ, not only his progenitor, but also his descendant. In Psalm 110, it speaks of David's descendant, Jesus Christ, the Messiah who would reign in the millennium and beyond. The Lord, the Jehovah, said unto my Adonai, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And what about after David had passed from the scene? What prophecies came after David passed from the scene? Hundreds of years after David had passed from the scene. What does the scripture say? We know one of these. We know, we know all of these, actually. Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, 
And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then it goes on at the end of verse 7. It says, upon the throne of who? David. Upon the throne of David. Is the Davidic covenant special and unique? Is it important? You better believe it because upon the throne of David, because he's an heir of David, he would be upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to do what? To order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time even forward forever. So now we're getting into forever. So we're getting out of the physical. <laughs> we're talking about forever and ever and ever. What about in Isaiah chapter 11? What does it say? Verse 1. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. It names Jesse's name by, by, by you know, right there. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. And in verse 10 it says, In that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him. What about Micah 5 verse 10? What does it say? Speaking not only of David's progenitor, but also David's offspring according to the flesh. It says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one, capital O, to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Is there anybody that is from old, from everlasting? No, it's the Logos of God, Jesus Christ. So this Davidic covenant is all wrapped up in David and David's descendant, David's progenitor, Jesus Christ. He existed before and now he's in the flesh. He comes after David. I know that's really exciting. What in Matthew, Matthew 22? Remember when Jesus was sparring with the Pharisees, it says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, this is uh, Matthew 22, beginning in verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, what do you think about Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. And he said to them, how then does David say in the spirit, call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And if David calls him Lord, how is he then his son? And he challenges them on, based on the psalm we just read in Psalm 110. Certainly he was David's descendant. But what he's saying right here is, I'm much more than just David's descendant. I'm the progenitor of David. I am the originator. I am, when it says, the Lord said unto my Adonai, that, that's Jesus. God the Father said unto Jesus, sit until I make your enemies your footstool. Sit at my right hand. And he was pointing and claiming deity in front of these very religious men. Very important. And what happened also in Luke chapter 1, verse 31 when the angel came to Mary, it says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb, Mary, the angel said to her, and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Give the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob for a couple weeks. No, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. No end in sight for this kingdom, the Davidic covenant. And finally, in Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus speaking here, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. 
reminding them again of the Davidic covenant and that he is the summation of it. He will be the one. I would encourage you to write off the side to this chapter, 1 Chronicles 17. 1 Chronicles, much of what we're reading in 2 Samuel, from this going forward, there's going to be a parallel account in 1 Chronicles. But write down 1 Chronicles 17 because it's pretty much verbatim what we're reading right now. So we don't even need to read it because it's pretty much the same. So let's go back to verse 1 again. It says, Now it came to pass when David was dwelling in his house after all of this, The Lord had given him rest around all of his enemies, and what a blessing to have rest, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside curtains. And again, I can't help but wonder if David is just sitting there on his bed and thinking about all that God had done, all that God is, he doesn't even know exactly yet. We're going to get to that. He's just thankful that he's got, you know, the Lord made him king over Israel you know, fulfilling those prophecies. I'm not even sure David was aware of his, uh, his complete understanding of his role in this whole thing. Maybe as time went on, but, you know, through him would come the Messiah. I wonder how much of that he really, really got. It may have taken, taken some time, but in this beginning of his ministry, I'm not sure. I don't know. It doesn't really matter because God is faithful, even when we are clueless. Amen. I love the fact that God knows what he's doing when I don't have a clue of what I'm doing. That makes him God. That makes me his subject. That makes me his servant. And I'm so glad to be his servant, aren't you? Is there anyone greater to serve than Jesus? I mean, I love him, and I know that you love him. And I would encourage you to serve him with all of your heart. And whatever it is that he puts on your heart, you do it with all of your heart and serve him and let him bless you. Let him bless you. But I can't help but wonder, as he's sitting there and then... You know, from his own lips, he says this, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside curtains. Maybe it wasn't a feeling of guilt that overcame him because he's looking at the disparity between his dwelling place and the dwelling place of the ark of the covenant, which was the very presence of God. And he's thinking to himself, hmm, maybe he was feeling a little guilty. Or maybe it had nothing to do with guilt at all. So then Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And this sounds like a very good thing to Nathan. And notice that he didn't inquire of the Lord either as to whether it should be done. David didn't inquire, neither did Nathan. And why? Because it is a very good idea. It's a really good idea. I can't imagine God would say no to this. Lord, should I help that elderly woman who's a, who her cane is kind of wobbling and, and she's going, it's wet outside, or maybe it's icy outside and she's going across the street and you can see her thing slipping a little bit. And, you know, I can't imagine that not being a good thing. In that case, it probably is a very good thing to go help her. But notice David and Nathan, they never inquired of the Lord. It was a really good idea. And now they're on this buzz, if I can use that, because now they've brought the ark into the Jerusalem. His his house is done, or is, is close to being done. And he's sitting there in relative peace, and he's like, Oh, finally. This is a really good idea. And he just goes ahead and does it. And Nathan gets caught up in that jubilation. And I can't blame him either. That's a really good idea. It is. It's a good idea. 
But when we make an assumption that something is good to do, we feel like we don't need to pray or ask the Lord. But, it, but this proves that that is not the case. We should never assume, and we all do that. I, I make assumptions all the time, and I assume that they're right on with the Lord, and, 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 uh, and many times they are not. And certainly this is one of them for David. But notice in verse 4, But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan. And I find it interesting here that the Lord spoke, could have spoken to David directly, couldn't he? Couldn't he have spoken to David while he was on his bed and planning? I mean, David was, uh, he was a, a very uh, aggressive guy. As soon as he heard word from Nathan that that was a good idea, do it, David. I'm certainly David sitting there on back on his bed, and he's sitting there thinking, man, I'm going to do this, and I, I, I can't wait to talk to the carpenters tomorrow morning because we're going to build. It's going to be the best thing since sliced bread. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be glorious. And he, God could have spoken to David and interrupted him, but I wonder if the Lord was, like, blessed by sitting there listening to David's musings. I wonder if that's why it took a little while for God to speak to Nathan. And he spoke to Nathan, the prophet, because Nathan was David's seer, and it was right for him to do that. God could have spoke to David directly, but he used Nathan, the prophet, who should have listened to the Lord, or at least communed with the Lord. Maybe they both should have had a little prayer service. Maybe they should have got together, but they didn't. And again, I probably wouldn't have either, honestly. I would have just gone headlong into this. But notice that the reply from God didn't come immediately, but rather it took, it took place later in the evening. And so finally God tells Nathan, Go and tell my servant, thus says the Lord, Why would you build me a house to dwell in? Notice this phrase, go and tell my servant David. You know, before God lets him down, before God lets him down, he affirms his faithful servant. God wasn't upset with David. But notice what he tells the prophet to do. He didn't tell him to go, you know, David, forget about it. You're not going to be the one, so stop dreaming about it. Stop wasting your time. Did he upbraid him for this? No, he says, go and tell my servant David. David, you are a servant, but there's some things you don't understand. There's some things that you don't understand, but David, I love you for the thought of it. I really do, and I'm so thankful, but I don't need a house. The heaven of heavens can't contain me. I'm not worried about a house. I never wanted a house. I never asked for a house. But this is the kind of interesting, too, because usually the greater is the one who provides for the lesser. And would David, who was created by God, build a house for God, who is the greater? Not likely. But again, he didn't fault David because it was a good thing, but it was also something that wasn't required of by the Lord. So back in our text, verse 6, it says, For I have not dwelt in a house, God says, since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but I've moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever have I moved about with all the children of Israel that I've ever spoken a word from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? See, God, Jehovah, is not like anyone else. Any other God, lowercase g, would have demanded that his subjects build him some great monument, but, but some great monument, but it's not to be so with God. The true God of all creation is very comfortable. He's very secure in who he is. He didn't come to earth in some kind of pompous parade and demanding riches and honor and glory. 
But rather, the angels announced his birth to shepherds in a field in Bethlehem came, and, they, and, they, and came without great fanfare, without great pomp and circumstance. The king of all creation came humbly. He was born in a cave and was laid in a feeding trough for the animals. The king of all creation And even though the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and all they that dwell therein, even though he is God of the universe, he never demanded gold and large buildings to dwell in, even though he's the only one who deserves it, right? But right now, brothers and sisters, right now in heaven, God is worshipped with great fanfare and with great jubilation. Our brothers and sisters who've gone before us, the angels and those four living creatures, they are all worshiping God, waiting for us to arrive. And it probably seems like just a moment for them before we arrive. They will feel like they've just gotten started and the rapture will occur and we'll be together and we will join that fray. But in the hearts of Christians and the churches all across the world, Jesus is worshiped with great reverence. Yet he came in a humble and non-ostentatious way. I love what it says in Zechariah 9, verse 9, that rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you on a stallion with 44 magnums. No, does it say that? No, it says that he came on a donkey. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. Kings would come into towns on a riding on a horse, but coming in on a donkey is a sign of peace, not of, con- not of a conquering general. He's coming back as a conquering general. And when he does, it's going to be a whole different story. But he came back as the meek and mild Jesus. He humbled himself. He humbled himself, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of man, and being found in the presence in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient even to the point of death, even to the death of the cross, which is the most humiliating form of capital punishment known to man at that time. But there was no form or comeliness about Jesus that when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That's who our humble Jesus is. Why are you building me a house? I don't need a big house. Have you heard my beginnings? (laughs) David, you don't know this, but about a thousand years from now, I'm going to become incarnate. My son is going to come incarnate into one of your descendants, Mary. She's a virgin. And she's going to give birth to me, and nobody's going to have room for me at the inn. I'm going to give, she's going to give birth to me in a cave and then stick me in a feeding trough where the cows and the sheep were just slobbering all over. They're going to put hay in it and put me in it. Wrapped in swaddling clothes, literally strips of cloth, rags. Do you think I need a big place, David? I love your heart, though. Love your heart, David, but I don't need it. I don't need it. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are 
who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and notice lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Such an interesting paradox. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. Not concerned about a house. He's fine wherever he's at. He doesn't need any of that. So back in our text in verse 8, Now therefore, God says, Thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold. Notice, God took him out of the sheepfold from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. Notice that David didn't put himself in that position. God called him to be ruler over his people. God is the one who did it. David did not call this upon himself. He didn't presume this upon himself. And notice verse 9, And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off your enemies from before you. I've made your name great like the name of the great men who are on the earth. And moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them, and that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. God had a specific place in mind when they came through the desert, through across the Jordan into the promised land, God had in his mind's eye Jerusalem. It would be there that he would place his name. In fact, in Deuteronomy 12, verse 10, it says, But when you cross over the Jordan, God here is speaking to, through Moses to the people of Israel before they would go into the promised land. When you cross over the Jordan and dwell on the land which the Lord your God has given you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety, then there, shall, then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. We know that ultimately would be, ultimately would be Jerusalem. And there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, all the choice offerings which you vow. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, your sons and your daughters, your servants, the Levites within your gates. Take heed to yourself and do all that I command you. So verse 11, he says, Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies... And I love this. The Lord tells you that he will make you a house. Wow, Lord, that's really amazing. Is it going to be a split-level ranch? Or is it going to be a three-story? Is there going to be an exercise room? Is there going to be a room at the top where there's a big pool with the edge that goes out to the skyline, right over to the edge, so it looks like I'm swimming out you know, off the edge of the cliff? You know, What's it going to be like? But God's not talking about a physical dwelling place. He's talking about a house of... Rulers, a house of kings, ultimately would find its summation in Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, the son of David. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, notice what God says, I will set up your seed after you. I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body. So now we know he's speaking of Solomon, correct? And I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So now, I believe that this is a play on words, because certainly it is speaking of Solomon, but it's also speaking of Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. That's why I brought up Genesis 3.15. Because to see how you see the picture going all the way back from, well, from your perspective looking at me, from Genesis 
all the way up until now, and then looking forward into the future, the seed of the woman, through the line of David, all the prophecies of the Old Testament. See, David was not to build the temple. The Lord spoke to him, and you might want to write this down in the margin of your Bible there. First Chronicles chapter 22, verse 6. Let me read it to you. So David, as he's speaking to Solomon, he called his son Solomon and he charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. So there's the reason. It wasn't because David's heart wasn't right. His heart was right. But God says, David, you can't build me a house. You've got a lot of blood on your hands. And it doesn't record for us whether that was spoken by Nathan or whether it was something that was spoken after the fact. Maybe Nathan gave him a little more information afterwards. Maybe David inquired, why, Lord? And maybe Nathan came back to him and said, David, It's because you have blood on your hands. Your heart is wonderful, but you can't build me a house. But your son will build me a house. And I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And if he commits iniquity, notice, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. Now, this is interesting because Solomon did commit iniquity, didn't he, in in his reign. But yet there is no mention of him receiving the rod of men and the blows of the son of men. Is there? You know who I believe he's speaking of here? Again, speaking of the physical right in front of him, certainly Solomon, but he's speaking of Jesus Christ because who ultimately is the seed of David? Who ultimately is the son of David? Even though Jesus didn't commit any iniquity, the Bible says that he laid upon him the iniquity of us all, and he was the one, Jesus was the one, who would receive the rod of men and the blows of men. He was the one who received the judgment. Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 tells us all about that. And Isaiah 53, Surely he was born our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes were healed. And then in verse 7 it says, He was oppressed. And afflicted, he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And at the end of verse 8, it says, He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. That's the reason for the transgressions of my people. And at the end of verse 12, he says, He is poured out. He poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Wow. It wasn't Solomon that would receive the blows. It was about a thousand years later, or 900 and some years later, that Jesus, the son of David, would receive those blows on the the cross at Calvary. But my mercy shall not depart from him, 
as I took it from Saul. Yes, God took mercy from Saul. Isn't that, uh, I, isn't that interesting? There are things, there's things of God's character and nature that I, I, I just, I honestly don't understand. But I know that he is good. And it's good for us whenever we do have questions, certainly we can ask him and maybe he'll reveal it to us. But there are things that I think God just keeps to himself. And we just have to learn to trust. Because therein is where our faith, that's where our faith grows. What did Job say? Even though he slay me, yet I, 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 um, I trust him. Even though, Lord, you allowed me to go through such horrible things that I couldn't even understand in myself. You allowed me to go through it, and even still, Lord, I trust you. And can you imagine the heart of God as he looks upon Job as a devil is just like this yakking chihuahua saying, you know, you, you're doing all this because you got a hedge about it. And he just, he's barking and barking and barking, and God says, uh, can you be quiet a minute? Look at my servant. Look what I've allowed you to do. I've allowed you to do what he, he's sitting in the dust. Can you see him? He's got boils. He's got pieces of pottery that he's scraping because it itches and yet it hurts. And you, Have you had that kind of condition with your, with your skin where it, it hurts yet it itches and you can't seem to keep your hands off yourself? Your nails are scraping it and then you, everyone's telling you, stop it, and you, and you don't do it. Then it gets, everything gets infected. Am I the only one? At least when we're younger, we do that. As we get older, we figure it out. And we're like, I'm really not going to touch that. You know? But when you're younger, you can't be told anything. You just scrape it until your arm falls off. But God, my mercy shall not depart from him, from Solomon, and certainly from David, as I took it from Saul when I removed him from before you. He wasn't the rightful king. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever. Underline this this word, forever and ever and ever. There's so much in this about forever and ever. It just keeps going. Underline those things here in these last, you know, verse 15, 16, and, uh, or 16 and 17. And your house shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. I mean, how much more could God say to us to get the point across? It's not some temporary thing. It's not going to last even a thousand years or even three thousand years. This is going to go on for eternity Eternity, your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to this vision, Nathan spoke to David. We don't have the time tonight, but I would encourage you also to write in your Bible, Psalm 132. Read Psalm 132. It's 18 verses long. Go home tonight and read that in context. Like, read those first 17 verses and then go over to Psalm 132. You'll see the great plan that God has, even going into the millennial reign and the Davidic covenant, how important it was, and the summation of that, the realization of that, the bringing it to fruition. And so now, from verse 18 down through the end, through 29, we see as a result of this dialogue that he has, he, he, you know, David went in before the, uh, in the tabernacle there that he had made, and he sits there before God, and he's, he's just blown away. After he hears all of this stuff, all of these wonderful, precious promises that God is going to do in and through him. Has God made precious promises to you? Has he made a promise to you? Maybe a long time ago and you've just forgotten about it. Maybe time has gone on and you just kind of forgot. 
Has God spoken to you? Have you given up on whatever it is that he said he was going to do? Did you think it was just something you ate the night before? Are you still praying about it? Or have you given up? And you know what? Even if you give up, God is able. He's able. So David breaks forth in thanksgiving. And really, isn't that where worship begins? Worship is always a response from us because of what God has done. That's why we worship him. We don't worship him. I worship him because of all that he's done for me. He's filled our hearts, hasn't he? Hasn't he done so much for us? I mean, even if he did nothing else for us for the rest of our lives other than save our wretched souls, if that is all that he did in my life, he deserves my praise. He deserves my, for me to honor him with my lips. He deserves my very life. I mean, honestly, think about it. What is the rest of my time here on earth? I may have, I don't know, uh, 25, 30 years left. I'm 51. If I make it to 91, that's 40 years. Doesn't he deserve all my life? Doesn't he deserve all of your life? Whatever it is that he wants, Lord, you got it. Help me to not be stingy with whatever. Help me to give my life completely over to you. Whatever I'm doing, whether I'm working a regular job, whatever it is, give yourself completely to him because he's got you there for a reason. But give thanks to him. And it's not just salvation that he gives us. He gives us his spirit. He gives us such a fruitful life. Isn't it a joy to be a Christian? I love being a Christian. I love being one of God's children because I know where I'm going, and it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with what he has done. He deserves the honor and the praise. Nothing of me. I am just so glad I'm blown out. And I just want to give it up and say, Lord, I'm yours. Take me. I like that song, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. Beautiful song, just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me. Oh God, give me that heart again. But it's important to give thanks to the Lord. I love giving thanks to the Lord for things he's already done. You know, I keep mentioning it, but when we put the roof on this place in 2013, prior to that it was Swiss cheese. Not not kidding. One of my ministries was emptying bales of water or pails of water and empty tins all around the whole entire complex. That's what I did in addition to my other things. And that was kind of tricky when the pans get really heavy and they get full. You have to use a syringe. You have to stand on the top of the ladder with an electric uh, uh, siphon with a pail. And, you know, it gets really interesting when you got to do that. But when this roof was put on, I gave thanks to the Lord. I'm like, oh, God, those days are over, at least for a while. Right? So glad we got a roof on this place. No one more than me (laughs) is happier than that. We got this roof. Sometimes even in prayer, I say, Lord, thank you again for that roof. (laughs) So thankful. But it's good to give thanks to the Lord, isn't it? And here David is giving thanks to the Lord for what God has told him that he is going to do. He hasn't even done it yet. He's told David what he's going to do. And David responds in adoration and humble exaltation. That is faith. That is faith. Oh, give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. 
Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing psalms to him. Talk of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. And let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his, seek his face forevermore. Remember his marvelous works which he has done. His wonders and the judgments of his mouth. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. To sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night on an instrument of twelve strings, on the lute, on the harp, with a harmonious sound as we did earlier this evening as we worshipped. Paul tells us in Corinthians, he says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. He told the Colossians, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. And David here is just, his heart is like a, a, a river that's just gushing forth. And God hasn't done it yet. But how can he feel so confident that God is going to do it? Well, hasn't God gotten him to this place so far? Hasn't he given him the kingdom that he said he was going to do? I wonder if he whispered in his ear, David, you know your, what I'm doing in your life right now goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Your, your part in this is very real. You're the link right in between. Do you know that, David? I've been thinking about you for an eternity. Got a plan for you. Notice, and then King David went in and he sat before the Lord. And notice what he says, Lord, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house and what, and, uh, that you have brought me thus far? And honestly, it's a very natural question to ask, something that's great to be done and when we know that we are not worthy of it. We have to understand that there is no one of us or will there ever be anyone who is worthy of God's promises, his great blessings, but we do. We, we don't understand when God blesses us. And I love it, especially when I've made some critical error, maybe in my own life. Maybe there's a sin issue in my life, and maybe I've just done that sin, and then I'm feeling really horrible. I'm repentant about it. I've asked God to forgive me. And that very day, man, he does something that just blows me away. Has it ever happened to you when you're feeling at your lowest of low, and he just does something and just blows you away? And you're like, are you really that good? Are you really that good? He goes, yeah, I'm much better than that, Rob. I'm much better than that. And yet, and David says, and yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God, and you have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of men, O Lord God? And now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. I love this relationship that David had. He had this confidence. And where was it, where was it nurtured? Where was it really um, shaped and molded? It was out in those fields when he was a shepherd as a young teenage boy. As he was out there chasing the sheep and protecting them and God giving him strength and wisdom. And he had sit out there and look at the stars at night as he's got the sheep in the pen. In between the rock barrier, he's standing there at the door with his staff, and he's looking up, and he's thinking. And God is molding and shaping this young man's heart.
for you know your servant, for your word's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Notice that. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our own ears. I love what it says in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 5. It says this, God speaking in the first person, he says this, I am the Lord God, and there is no other. I love this. I love reading these these verses because the natural man, if he were to read this, he would be boasting in his own arrogance. But guess what? God is all that he is. He's not even boasting. He's just being factual. See, when I boast of some greatness, it's not factual. But when he boasts, he's not boasting. He's just being truthful. He can't deny himself. Yes, he is all that. I love this. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you Though you have not known me, that you may know that from the rising of the sun to its setting, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Hallelujah. No one like me, he says. And I'm so glad for that. Nobody like him. In the 21st verse of that same chapter, he says, Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared from the ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior? There is none besides me. Amen to that. Exclamation point. Underline it with a big, fat, red pen. And then take a yellow highlighter and just soak it through about 18 pages in your Bible. Yes, there's none besides me. Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, things which are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. He is Almighty God. And David is just reveling before him, saying, Lord, you've spoken of your servant things to come that I I can't even fathom. I can't even fathom it. And notice back in our, 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 our chapter here, in verse 23, and he says, Who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land before your people, whom you've redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods. For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever, and you, Jehovah, have become their God. Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. I love that. You know, there's a a part of us that could be really timid, you know, when God lays out this huge magnanimous thing that he's going to do. You know, most of us, myself, I'd be like, But David's like, you do it, God. Do it now. Start right now and just do it. All that you said, just blow it. Blow it out of the sky. Nuke it, Lord. Make it happen. I love it. You know, David was always a worshiper. Saul was never a worshiper, but David was always a worshiper. And I think God loves a worshipful heart, a heart that is filled with thanksgiving. It's a good thing to procure in your life, to have, it's a good thing to foster in your life, a heart of thanksgiving. Instead of, Lord, I don't have this. Lord, I don't have that. Why them and not me? Why is it always me that's in the trouble? Why don't I have those nice things? How come I never get that? I never get that opportunity. And they do, and they don't deserve it. (laughs) 
Instead of complaining, maybe we got to start praising and say, Lord, and that, isn't that life, honestly? There are people who are better than I am that have it much worse. And then you can have somebody who is not so good in the flesh, even a compromising Christian, and God can be blessing your socks off, and somebody who is closer to the Lord than you, they're going through trial after trial after trial. And it's wrong for us to go, well, God must love me more than you. No, God knows what he needs to do. And we can't be looking at each other as equals and sizing each other up. It's a very wrong thing to do. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, I'm sorry, let me back up to verse 26. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel, and let the house of your servant David be established before you. I love the, the zeal in David, not cowering, but saying, Lord, you're going to do this? Then do it. Establish it and make it happen. I want to be a willing participant, and you make it happen, God, because you have a plan. It's your plan. It's a good plan. Because it is your plan, it's a good plan. And therefore, I want to submit to it with all my heart. For you, O Lord of hosts, verse 27, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to make this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. Isn't God's track record 100%? Isn't it immaculate? You are God and your words are true and you have promised this goodness to your servant. This goodness, how could I ever deserve it? I could never deserve it, God. And help me to free me from ever thinking I could deserve it. Free me from ever thinking that I had something to offer that would somehow tilt the scales. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord, have spoken it and with your blessing... Let the house of your servant again be blessed forever. I like that. He's bold in God. Even in his humility, even in his decrepitness, I think it would be safe to say David, as he is before God, just totally blown away, realizing what he really is, and yet he was the smallest. He came from Bethlehem, right? Wasn't that Micah 5 2 is all about? But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Out of you, even though you're smallest among the thousands of Judah, out of you shall come forth the one to rule. And it wasn't speaking of David necessarily, because David had already passed from the scene, but it was speaking of his ancestor in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Let's finish tonight with 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. It says this, because as we think about the promises that God had given to David, the Lord has promises to you as well, and he wants to bless us. He still wants to bless us, regardless of your performance. Are you a performance-driven Christian? There's nothing wrong with desiring to do well, but is your relationship with God based on your performance, or is it based on faith? Believing that right now, regardless of anything that you've ever done, even the things that you're involved in right at this moment, this very day, that God loves you equally right now as he did a few days ago. And he loves you equally as much tomorrow as he loved you today. 
Before you were born, did he tell Jeremiah? Before you were formed, I knew you in the womb, and I've ordained you to be a prophet among the nations. I loved you. I had a plan for you before you were even born. I love that about God. But in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, it says this, and I love this, something for us to all hang our hats on tonight. For all the promises of God in him, notice, not in man, but all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us, Paul says to the Corinthians. And that promise is for you and me. The Lord loves you guys. And you know, many of you have gone through a lot of tough stuff, and I have too. This last year and a half, you've heard me say it, has been the most challenging, difficult time of my entire life on so many levels. And God's promises have come through, and he's still working. He's still doing things wonderful things that I could never imagine, that I could never deserve. And guess what? He's doing that in your life too. Will you seek him? Will you take him at his word and rehearse before him the promises that he has given and pray and seek his face and confess your sins along with me? Confess. And let's honor our king and let's rest in his promises. Amen? Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for this time together and pray you bless us now and bless us tomorrow as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.